The headline here is that a REIT under prior law that may have made an eligible investment in EV charging stations, geothermal, or solar that resulted in a tax credit would not have been able to substantially utilize that credit at the REIT level. Now, that same REIT will have the full tax credit available to sell. Hello and welcome to the REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah borgson Keto. According to one estimate, the recently enacted Inflation Reduction Act includes some $369 billion in energy-related provisions. With me today to discuss some of the highlights of those provisions and what they mean for the REIT industry is Kathy Beret, NAREIT Executive Vice President and General Counsel. Kathy, can you start by giving us an overview of why this legislation is, is important to REITs and putting it into a broader historical context? Thanks, absolutely. Well, as we know, sustainability continues to be in focus for REITs and their stakeholders, and there are signs that REITs are making progress. For example, REITs reporting to GRESB reduced their greenhouse gas emissions by 12% in 2021. With that in mind, I'm going to share with you a bit about what's new for REITs and the sustainability-related tax credit incentives in the new law. The headline here is that a REIT under prior law that may have made an eligible investment in EV charging stations, geothermal, or solar that resulted in a tax credit would not have been able to substantially utilize that credit at the REIT level. Now, that same REIT will have the full tax credit available to sell. To appreciate the shift in the new legislation, this is really for the tax-focused crowd, it's worth noting that a number of obstacles have historically limited the ability of REITs to utilize tax credit incentives. One of those obstacles has been a limit on the calculation of certain tax credits that effectively limits the REITs to no more than 10% of the value of the credit available to other entities. Further, given that REIT income generally bears tax at the shareholder level rather than the REIT level, tax credits at the REIT level typically would go unused. The Inflation Reduction Act addresses both of these issues for certain sustainability-related tax credits. First, the statute provides that REITs are permitted to transfer or sell certain tax credits to unrelated entities for cash. Second, if the REIT elects to transfer the tax credit, the legislation eliminates that old provision I just mentioned that would have otherwise limited a REIT to at most 10% of the full tax credit. And moreover, any payment that the REIT receives in selling the tax credit is not treated as gross income to the REIT. So how will that impact REITs that invest in illegible sustainability-related projects, Kathy? Well, up to this point, REITs may have engaged with entities eligible to use these types of tax credits when going forward with a project by, for example, doing a license agreement in the parking lot with another party who installs, collects revenue from, and maintains EV charging stations or entering into a power purchase agreement and hosting solar on the roof of their building. Or REITs with profitable taxable REIT subsidiaries have been able to invest in eligible property in that C-Corp subsidiary, the taxable REIT subsidiary, which owes tax and offsets some of that tax with the earned tax credits. It's important to recognize that all those existing options remain and the extended and more generous tax benefits in the new legislation will presumably help support the economics of new projects done based on some of those existing models. However, now, assuming they continue to meet their other REIT requirements, the REITs have the option of investing in eligible property directly in the REIT, selling the tax credit, 
and not being encumbered by potential limitations associated with being one step removed from the ownership of the eligible property or the limitations associated with investing through the taxable REIT subsidiary. So now that REITs can benefit from the tax credits, what exactly are the tax credit incentives in the legislation? Well, I'm I'm gonna focus on a few, but I would note that with respect to everything I'm gonna say here on what the actual tax credits are, there are a lot of good resources out out there, but I'm gonna focus on a few that I think REITs specifically will find of interest. The legislation's climate-related tax benefits enmesh pre- pre-existing tax credit constructs with the new, new provisions. The changes related to pre-existing tax credits generally apply to projects that begin construction before 2025, including for the investment tax credit, which applies to solar and other renewable energy facilities. The law also expands the investment tax credits in a number of ways, such as its application to energy storage facilities and microgrid controller equipment, among other things. The investment tax credit, or the ITC, for equipment that uses ground or groundwater as a thermal energy source to heat a structure or as a thermal energy sink to cool a structure, is extended and then phased down from 2033 to 2035. For construction that begins in 2025 and later, the law introduces two new so-called tech-neutral tax credits, the Clean Energy Production Credit and the Clean Energy Investment Credit for qualified energy production and storage facilities. The base amount of the credit is generally 6%, but that amount is increased to 30% for smaller projects that have a maximum net output of less than one megawatt of electrical or thermal energy and for projects that satisfy the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements. There's also an exception for projects that begin construction within 60 days after the Treasury Department issues guidance on the prevailing wage apprenticeship requirements. Now, given that rule with respect to the timing of the Treasury guidance, I assume we're going to be seeing guidance soon on those prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements. But just to give you a high-level idea on what prevailing wage is about, generally, those employed by the taxpayer or contractor in the construction of the energy project or the alteration or repair of the project for five years after it's placed in service must be paid at the prevailing wage in the locality. The Department of Labor sets out the prevailing wage rate, which is the average wage paid to similarly employed workers in a specific occupation in the area of intended employment. Incidentally, the DOL issued a proposed rule for comment in March related to changing how the DOL determines the prevailing wage. Bonus credit adjustments are available if domestic content, think of made in the USA type requirements, are met for facilities located in an energy community, which generally relates to communities with a legacy economic connection to coal, oil, or natural gas, and an above average unemployment rate or a brownfield site. Solar and wind facilities in low-income communities or that are a part of a qualified low-income residential building project or a low-income economic benefit project are also eligible for bonus credit amounts. In order to be eligible for the new clean energy investment credit, the facility must be used for the generation of electricity, be placed in service after 12-31-2024, and have an anticipated greenhouse gas emission rate of not greater than zero. The base credit and bonus credits are generally the same as the amounts we've already discussed for the investment tax credit. The clean energy investment credit will phase out 
the earlier of 2032 or when greenhouse gas emissions decline to 25% or lower of the emissions produced in 2022. So Kathy, can you talk a bit about the EV charging aspect of the new legislation? Great question. The legislation extends the expiration date of the credit to 2032 and changes the credit eligibility provisions and credit amounts for properties placed in service after 2022. So with respect to property placed in service after 2022, there's a, a gating mechanism here. In order to be eligible for the alternative fuel re recharging property credit, an EV charging station must be located in what they're calling an eligible census tract. For this purpose, an eligible census tract is a low-income community as defined in the Internal Revenue Code. The specifics are a lot more detailed than this, but, but the rules focus on whether the po poverty rate in the census tract is at least 20% or if the median family income in the census tract is 80% or lower than the median family income in the nearby areas. If, it's, if the census tract is not in a low-income community, the census tract can still qualify if it's not in what is termed an urban area. Whether the census tract is in an urban area is designated by the Secretary of Commerce based on the most recent census. It's my understanding that the Census Bureau plans to announce final urban areas based on the 2020 census in December of 2022. So we'll know that pretty soon. Provided that the charging station is in an eligible census tract, it's eligible for a 6% credit, increased to 30% if either construction begins prior to the date that 60 days after the Treasury Department publishes guidance with respect to the prevailing wage and apprenticeship provisions, or the prevailing wage and apprenticeship provisions are satisfied. The credit is limited to $100,000 for each single item of qualified alternative fuel vehicle refueling property. And are tax credits the only tax incentives that have changed? Well, Section 179D provides a deduction for certain expenditures that improve a building's energy efficiency. For new buildings, that improvement's based on the ASHRAE standard. Under these new rules for existing buildings that are at least five years old, that improvement is based on reduced energy usage compared with the building's own energy usage baseline. This is a significant change and definitely worth a look at if you have an older building and are considering retrofit expenses. The law increased the deduction based on a sliding scale and only if those prevailing wage and apprenticeship rules are met of up to $5 a square foot. In addition, the deduction would reduce both the REIT's taxable income and its so-called earnings and profits, which ensures that the benefit of the deduction impacts the REIT shareholder. So finally, Kathy, what else do you think REITs need to know about the legislation? Well, there's a lot to digest in the legislation. We know that regulation projects are going to go into high gear, and we're going to learn a lot more. There are credits we didn't even cover today, but I hope I've highlighted a few of interest. In closing, I suppose I would just say that if you're a sustainability professional, please reach out to your tax expert. And if you're a tax expert, please reach out to your sustainability professional. This is likely going to be a team sport. And stay tuned. NARIT will continue to engage with our members as the marketplace and regulatory framework evolve in this space. Thanks, Sarah. Great. Thanks, Kathy, so much for your time.